How many of you have taken a DNA test to discover your ancestry? Oh, okay, there's a few of you here. Uh, I happened to do that, I don't know, a couple years ago. It was an interesting um, uh, exercise for me. It, it just kind of verified some things I heard about my family, so it, it wasn't anything that surprised me. On the test, essentially I'm 90%, 89% uh, Chinese, especially from the southern part of China. And then the other parts, which didn't really surprise me except for one aspect, uh, I have part of me is Japanese, and then there's part of me that's Korean. The Korean part surprised me. But it doesn't, doesn't mean much other than it verified certain migratory patterns of my family. So if you actually understand those DNA tests, it really isn't talking about genetics in your genes. It's just looking at commonalities of your genes to gene pools in particular areas of the world. So it just means that somebody in your family came from a particular geographical area in the world. And so if we think of that fact, essentially a lot of us here in the United States, we've migrated from different parts of the world. I think I saw something on, on Facebook, this image, that if you're an American, your heritage is either Native American, a slave, refugee, or immigrant. There's nothing else. It's either of those four things. Either you are a Native American, either you are a slave, refugee, or an immigrant. That's pretty much the, the status of anyone who calls themselves an American. My immigration story is one that started in the mid-1800s. My great-grandfather came to the Hawaiian Islands, which was at that time known as the Kingdom of Hawaii. And that's where he settled. And then my grandmother on my father's side was actually born in Hawaii. And then she later met my grandfather, who came from China in the early 1900s, to settle in California. And that's where they began a family. Then on the flip side, my mother's side is also immigrants to the United States. She came to the United States via Hong Kong when she moved there after World War II from China. And, and from in Hong Kong, she actually met my father, who happened to be on military leave when he was serving as, uh, in the Army, in uh, Army intelligence during the Korean War. And they liked each other, they got married, and she came to the United States in 1955. So the immigrant story is part of my history, and I'm sure a lot of you in this room, the immigration story is also part of your family history. But when I mention that word immigration, it's such a hot-button issue today, right? When we look at the news, for whatever reason, it is being used in politics to get people upset or angry or afraid that the word immigrant is such a negative word in our culture today. And that's a sad thing to, to, to understand. And we're currently in a series where we're talking about issues that, that, that transfer over into politics. And immigration is one of those things. And today, I'm going to be speaking about what is the Christian response to immigration and to immigration reform. And, and if you're just looking at the news, our country is so divided. 
It's so polarized, especially over this particular issue. And, and next week, we have an opportunity to make a difference through an election by our voting. So we heard from Denny earlier to encourage those who are eligible to vote, do vote, because it does make a difference, because that is the only way that we can, in some sense, have our voice heard. Now, we're going to go through a little bit maybe of history, a little bit of civics, a little bit about U.S. history. Uh, some of the stuff you may not have heard before, it doesn't surprise me. I remember going through grade school, middle school, high school, a lot of this stuff was not taught. And, and for some reason, uh, and I think I know the reasons why they're not taught. The U.S. Constitution begins with these three words, we the people. Very significant. It says, we the people. It's in the preamble of the Constitution, and it emphasizes that the government essentially has no power. The government only has power that is ordained and given by the people. That's why it starts with we the people. That the government can't do anything unless the people allow them to do that. That's what the Constitution uh, symbolizes. And it's ironic. In the next few words after we the people, it says this. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. Justice. Unfortunately, some people have forgotten that the primary reason that the United States was formed was to create a place where justice happens. When uh, he campaigned for president, his presidency in 1976, President Jimmy Carter said this when he was campaigning. He quoted a theologian a German-American named Reinhold Niebuhr. This theologian said, and he warned, that the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. I'm going to repeat that. That the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. This is where theology and politics overlap that we as a people and we as Christians have a voice and a responsibility to exercise our right of citizenship, to vote leaders and politicians who will fulfill that mandate to establish justice in a sinful world. Now, I'm not advocating for a theocracy. And there is an importance of having a separation of church and state. More so for the church, that the church may remain pure and away from the corruption that is often found in politics. But that does not mean the church and its people cannot exercise their, their responsibility to advocate for justice. So what does the Bible say about immigrants and immigration reform? First about immigrants. If you just Google it, it's so simple. You can just Google it and all the verses about immigrants will pop up in your search. And they're pretty consistent. In the Bible, it's simply to love them. 
That's the summary of every single verse you're going to find about immigrants, is that we, as God's people, are to love them. The translation for immigrant in the Bible comes in, in many words. It's either stranger, sojourner, alien, foreigner. They're all the same. Those are all translated to mean the same thing. In Leviticus 19, just for example, verses 33 to 34, it says, starting with verse 33, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So right there, God is reminding his people, just as he took the Israelites out of Egypt and became essentially refugees, immigrants, that they were to treat anybody who was a foreigner or a stranger just like they were strangers. To treat them as if they were native-born. To treat them specifically there, you shall love him as yourself. Hmm. Where else have we heard that? Love them, love people, love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Testament, right? Jesus says the same thing. And that, if we take it literally, to love someone as yourself means what you do for yourself, you do for them. 50-50, exactly the same. Looking in, a, in, a, in the New Testament, Jesus himself identifies with the stranger. And I think probably the hardest scripture verses that are very convicting to me is the ones that we find in Matthew 25. And it's, if you're familiar with that text, it's known as the parable of the sheep and goats. Right? It, it, it's essentially Jesus is telling that there one day will be a day of judgment. That we all... If we are believers, we understand that we will come before God and answer some specific questions. And apparently, Jesus tells us what those questions are going to be. And in this particular case, it's about serving particular people among us because Jesus himself identifies with those people. In verse 34, or actually 33 to 34, um, 34 to 35, excuse me. Matthew 25, verses 34 to 35. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, I mean Jesus. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. There's that word, stranger, foreigner, immigrant, alien right there in the text, that when we welcome them, then we are welcoming Jesus. When we love a stranger, we love Jesus. And that's what Jesus tells us will make you fit into the group that's called the sheep, the ones who will be given the kingdom of God. It says right there, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Pretty clear pretty hard to argue against that. Now, what are the consequences for not 
obeying that. And Jesus continues in that parable of the, of the sheep and the goats. He says in, in um, verse, verses 44 to 46 in Matthew 25, that essentially, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you, essentially go into eternal punishment. Now you can figure out what that's going to look like, eternal punishment. But I don't think it's a good thing compared to eternal life or eternal time in, in God's kingdom versus eternal punishment. In verse 44, it says, Then they, the goats, also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Verse 45, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's pretty scary. That if we don't help the homeless, we don't feed the hungry, we don't give drink to the thirsty, we don't clothe the naked, and we don't welcome the stranger, the foreigner or the alien or the, na or, or the um, stranger, we can go into eternal punishment. So that's pretty clear what the Bible says. I don't know if you're going to find anything different. So it's up to you whether you follow that commandment or not, like any other commandment that God or, or Jesus gives us. We have the free will to choose to follow or not follow, to obey or not obey. But I'm just giving you what it says from the Scripture, exactly what we're supposed to do. But it's up to you what you want to do. Now, when I talk about immigrants and immigration reform, I'm moving now into an area which many would consider politics, and that the church and as Christians, we are supposed to stay away from that. But earlier, I kind of made a case that, yes, the church and, and politics and government should be separate because in many ways, the church must remain pure. But it doesn't mean that we hide and not advocate or give a voice that influences those who are in politics. And, and currently, when, when I talk about immigration reform, it's often used as a word to hide other agendas. The term that often comes up with uh, immigration reform is illegals or undocumented. I have to say that is probably the least important aspect of immigration. Immigration in the United States has always been about racism, economics, then maybe legalism. But in the, in the narrative that is often used in politics, it's not about racism, it's not about economics, it's about illegal, about people breaking the law. But I'm going to make a case here, is that 
just because there are laws, it doesn't mean we have to follow those laws or that those laws are right. Because you just have to examine historically in the United States, there have been many laws. And many of these laws, like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the Jim Crow laws, were those legal laws? Yeah, they were on the books. But were they just? I would venture to guess most of us in, in our, this room would agree that those laws were not justified. But our government enacted them, enforced them. I talk to a lot of lawyers. You know, laws are on the books, but they are selectively enforced. It's discretionary. Right? It, I'll give you an example. Spe speeding, right? You can go, it says 65. We can go past it because it's the discretion of the officers to enforce it or not. It's the same way with any law that are on the books. It's purely discretionary. And unfortunately, that discretion has many biases and prejudices in it. Who gets charged with these laws or who doesn't? This issue of illegal immigrants. The United States currently has 330 million people. If we trust this number, there's about so-called 11 million who are undocumented. If you do the numbers, the math, 11 million compared to 330 million is 3%. It's less than 3%. It's about 3% of the population. Is that really a big problem? You be the judge. But unfortunately, they are being demonized as invaders to our country. What? That this 3% is really going to destroy the sovereignty of the United States? In the course of our series, in review, uh, Pastor Gary Vanderpool came, and he, he suggested that, that there can be evil in this world, that this evil can use institutions like governments to do its evil. Ephesians 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The Apostle Paul says that there are powers within principalities and, and governments to can exercise evil. Last week, Sabrina Chan, who is the National Director of Asian American Ministries for InterVarsity, made the case that, that as Christians, we should advocate against institutions. She used a case that's found in Acts 6, verse, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So that daily distribution was essentially an institutionalized food, food distribution to, to the people. 
and the Hellenistic Jews were complaining against the Hebrew Jews that the Hellenistic widows and orphans were not being treated well. And it says there in Scripture, they brought up a complaint. That's advocacy. An injustice is happening, and a particular people group are complaining to another people group who are in power. So that is a case where believers can be politically advocating for injustices in the world. If we look at American history, it is full of racism. And a lot of times, these racist attitudes are cloaked under economics. And then it translates into politics. And oftentimes, dominant culture demonizes minorities. They make them subhuman. They turn them into animals. I'm just going to go to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. I don't know if any of you got this taught in your classes. It wasn't in mine. Sabrina last week mentioned in Richmond, Virginia. That was not covered there. I have a patient who's about the same age as Mike, uh, as, as me. Um, she came and visited for one of her dental visits. She's white. She's actually a school teacher. And she told me that she felt bad that she had never heard of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. She's a school teacher. But it was not in her education, and then too recently she discovered that. And, and, and that was a little bit shocking for me, but in some ways it didn't surprise me. But for those of you who are not familiar with that, it is the only law in the United States that ever targeted one particular race of people. And it had consequences. It had consequences for my family, who I said came in the 1870s. There was a consequence that Chinese people could not be citizens of the United States. They could not even immigrate to the United States. They could not vote. They could not be a witness in the courts. They were essentially demonized as people who were going to invade the United States. But the reality is, in 1882, there were only 107,000 Chinese. 107,000. Compare that to 63 million people in the United States. It was less than 1%. And a law is put on the books because the Chinese people obviously could not defend themselves. But a dominant culture happened to be white. We're listening to Irishmen who are angry because um, during the 1860s, 1870s, you understand there was this big push for the railroad that connected the East Coast to the West Coast. The Irish were building it from the East. The Chinese were building it from the West. And the employers found that the Chinese were pretty good at building railroads. And the Irish were upset because they were hiring more Chinese than Irish. And so they made a big stink. And they said, how can you hire them? And so this law came into effect to prevent employers to hire Chinese laborers because 
the Irish were not happy. But it was purely on a racist issue more than an economic issue. But you add them together, then it seems to justify uh, we can be racist for this particular reason. I have a picture I think I found on, on the internet. There it is, yeah. That's an ad for an American washing, a laundry service. And they're depicting the Chinese as like rats, like vermin, and say, if you use them, you're going to be dirty. It's right there in the text. So don't buy or, or patronize Chinese laundries. Patronize us. If you use any, look, just Google it, and you'll see images that, that are always used to, to demonize, dehumanize minorities that make them look like animals or monsters. I don't know, if you look around in a room, do any of you look like that? Just saying. So that's generally the modus operandi of those who are in power. To scapegoat, to demonize, to make, to make people afraid. But you just have to fact check these things. The uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, my own grandmother, who was only four years old at the time, she was born in 1898, and this act uh, became law in 1882, and in effect in 1890. So she had to get uh, a certificate of residence. So I think I have, uh, that's the actual document, my picture of my grandmother in the lower left corner there. She was only four years old. But if, if you, as an immigrant, especially Chinese, if you didn't have papers to identify that you had the right to be in the United States, you're deported. She's only four years old. Could you imagine a four-year-old being deported back to China? And she, did, she didn't know anything about China. She was born in Hawaii. But that was the case that, that many people encountered of Chinese nationality in the 1800s. And that law, you know, was on the books until 1943. Pretty sad. And the only reason it got repealed because the United States needed China to be an ally in World War II. So the Chinese government who was unhappy with that law from the beginning, said, if you want us to fight with you, you have to remove that law. So the United States, in their magnanimous generosity, said, okay, we'll do that. And they increased Chinese immigration to 105. Wow, that's a big number. 105 could now immigrate to the United States from China. Pretty silly. But if you look at the facts, that's the fact. Now, in, um, everything changed in 1965. There was the Immigration Naturalization Act. It abolished the quotas for 
for national, based on national origin, because prior to that, in, in 1924, there was a, a law, uh, an immigration act, that only 2% of the population from a particular nation, based on 1890 census, which is crazy, this is 1924, you're basing your census in 1890 of how many people can come into the United States with specific banning from other locations. That act banned anybody from Asia coming to the United States. It was very specific and also from Southern European. Southern European and Asia were not allowed to immigrate. Northern European, you could. Now, if you look at that, that's pretty racist. It was essentially establishing purity of culture and of race. If you were German, English, French, you could come. But if you were Italian, Spanish, Asian, you're not allowed to come. Pretty specific. But in 1965, that was all eliminated because something happened in 1964. And this is where we have to understand that immigration law is in many ways changes because of advocacy and civil rights of, that others have fought for us. African-American brothers and sisters protested things that happened, horrible things happened. In 1964, they gained the Civil Rights Act, which essentially eliminated bias, discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So folks, many of you could immigrate to this country because that happened. Because in 1965, a year after that, the floodgates opened where it wasn't based on nation of origin. So, depending on your immigration history, when you came to the United States, when it, it often influences what you think about immigration. And, and this is where I'm trying to encourage you all, is to think about the past of what others have sacrificed so that you could be here. Because oftentimes our attitude is more of a me-only kind of attitude. I'll get my own. What's mine is mine, and what's yours is mine too. It's a self-centered attitude. But you're only here because of the sacrifices of someone else. Now, we, we have a president who last week is posturing to eliminate birthright citizenship. And you know, this is preposterous because it's pretty hard to do that. It's going to require uh, a constitutional amendment to changing of that. That's, that's not likely to happen. But the reason he does this is to rally a particular group in our country to vote a certain way. It's to create this fear, again, that there is a vermin coming into the United States that will spoil everything that we know as America. I've already kind of made a case that this is historically the case over and over again, that history seems to want to repeat itself. Those of us who are spiritual, 
understand, if we believe what the apostle says, that there are evil forces in our institutions, this doesn't surprise us. And so, as people who follow Jesus, we must not be satisfied or complacent and say, I'm okay because it doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me. That's someone else's problem. Because right now, currently, the, the cases against this so-called caravan coming up from Honduras, essentially, there are a lot of them, just women and children, and, and, and they're saying that they're going to invade the United States. I mean, right now, it may be 8,000 people. It might be even less by the time they get to the border. Really? They're really going to destroy the United States? But that's the narrative that a particular administration is saying out there. So don't fall for it, but also don't ignore it. Because there is, unfortunately, so-called evangelicals who have bought into nationalism as part of the Christian way. This is crazy. We have someone who heads Samaritan's Purse, Franklin Graham, who says immigration is not a Bible issue. That's a quote. Immigration is not a biblical issue. I don't know what Bible he's reading, but I just gave you some from the beginning, the scripture clearly saying that immigrants are people we are to love just as ourselves. There's a poll recently, which is a scary poll, of middle-aged white women who are evangelical, primarily from the South. And they're voting a particular way because they want to preserve a certain culture under the guise of security. This is scary, folks. That evangelicals White evangelicals want to preserve a certain way of life, which means white dominant and everybody else go to hell. That is scary. That's why I don't identify myself as evangelical anymore. It used to be a word that meant something, but it's one that I will run away from now because I am not going to be identified with a group of people who hate people of color. And there's an economic reason. There's an economic reason if you don't understand the race, racism issues about immigration. I just came back from Japan. And, and do you, Japan itself is a, is a dying nation. Uh, our tour guide said about immigration, we're an island. We have no immigration. But the underlying value is that the Japanese have a high value of remaining pure as a race. But with that high value, they're dying. And econo economists say that, and the same thing's happening in the United States. If we don't watch this, economists say to support the social security system, we need three employees, people working, to support everybody, every single person that's on social security. It's three to one. 
Right now, it's at 2.9. In 10 years, it's going to be 2.0. The Social Security system cannot sustain itself if we don't increase the younger population. And the one way to do that, as economists feel, is immigration. You gotta let people in who want to work, and then they will be able to support the social security system. The Japanese right now it's at 1.8. That's pretty pretty sad. So they're not sustainable. Their their um, uh, cure for that, not for the system, but they're lacking even workers to support the businesses in the country. So they're saying robotics, autom automation is the way to, to fill in jobs that other people can't take. But robots don't pay taxes. And so when I, I, I want to continue here, that if you have that attitude is that I did it the right way, I sacrifice, why can't others sacrifice? I want to remind you of this parable that Jesus uses. It's from Matthew 20, verse 8 to 16. It's about the vineyard workers. And if you're familiar with that parable, I'm going to go ahead. It's about a, a, a master having the ability to pay whatever he wants to pay to the first workers or the last workers. Verse 8, it says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving, if they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to, you, to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what, happens to, what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Now, I understand this parable is talking about God's grace and, and um, salvation. So you may say it's not necessarily the same as to how we should um, treat the immigration issue. But it does point that as people who have received the grace of God, the gift of salvation from, from Jesus... It should promote to us that we should be content and satisfied and have an attitude of generosity to others. And so when we apply to immigrants and those who are coming recently into this country, this attitude is, I did it the hard way. I did it the right way. Why can they jump the line? I want you to just wrestle with that, that attitude that seems to be prevalent in throughout the scriptures, of being generous and gracious to others instead of looking more self-centered. So what are some next steps? I outlined uh, for you a few. Study the scripture on the topic of immigrants. Wrestle with it and hear from God what you believe will serve justice. 
I want you to engage with the immigrant community. A lot of us probably may have disconnected ourselves from the immigrant community. Hear their stories. Their, their reasons for being here. And a lot of them is purely un, for survival. It's pretty hard to move from a foreign land to come to, from, another, from your homeland to come to a foreign land. Many of our family members did that. It's a scary thing to go from a country where you're known to a country where you can't even speak the language. So learn their stories. Engage with the immigrant community. Then advocate. Be proactive in affirming and, and, and sharing your voice about immigrants to others. And of course, the most practical thing, next, next week is election day. So vote. Vote for politicians that will, sadly, as Reinhold Niebuhr says, to establish justice in a sinful world. As Christians, that's our responsibility. Now, I've talked about scripture, a little bit of history. Uh, a lot of this could be more textbook to a lot of you, but it's always good to put a face on the issue. And so I have a special guest here. I'd like to bring him up. His name is Danny Thongsey. So why don't we give him a CLC welcome? Morning, Danny. Good morning, Pastor. So um, I have a few questions here. So why don't we just start off with, can you share your personal story? Uh, Yes. So basically, uh, um, how many of you guys have heard about the Vietnam War? Yes, so uh, the, the Vietnam War itself has, um, you know, a lot of uh, rippling effects upon the Southeast Asian, uh, you know, country within itself, right? And uh, it's because the, the communist takeover and also uh, U.S. involvement in the war within itself, perpetuating uh, the war. And um, my family origin are uh, Laotian. Uh, they're from Laos. And uh, Laos, uh, during that time, from... Uh, 1964 to 1973, I believe, uh, it was uh, considered the most heavily bombed uh, country per capita. And uh, statistically speaking, I think it's uh, nine days, eight minutes for 24 hours, uh, Laos were bombed. So because of that, it left the country vulnerable for a communist takeover. So uh, my, after the communist takeover, my family fled to uh, Thailand as refugee, because if they would have stayed, they would have been killed, re-educated, or put in, uh, you know, labor camp. As uh, many many of us probably uh, heard about the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, uh, genocide in Cambodia, that was also around that time as well, and also the fall of Saigon. Uh, so um, my family fled to uh, a refugee camp in Thailand and there in the refugee camp of Thailand, 1979, I was born. So uh, the, the refugee camp condition was pretty horrible. Uh, however, my family were able to uh, uh, resettle here in the United States in 1981. Uh, at first, uh, uh, our U.S. government didn't want to accept refugees and didn't want to take the responsibility of their involvement. But however, uh, because of... Uh, Organization like CRAC, South Southeast Asian Action uh, Resource Action Center, advocated, 
and also other nation, you know, uh, place shame upon the U.S. And that's why Congress, uh, you know, allowed the Family Reunification Act in 1981. And that's uh, when uh, many uh, Southeast Asian uh, families were able to uh, reunify with their family members here in the U.S. And um, when we uh, resettled, my family uh, resettled in Stockton, California. And uh, when we resettled there, it was in a low sector, impoverished uh, sector area of uh, town where, where it's uh, riddled with uh, poverty, gang, and violence. And not to mention uh, uh, the trauma war that my, both of my parents carry as well. And also having to adapt to the culture, not, know, not understand the system, the way the system operates, and also uh, the language within itself, right? So I, I grew up in this umbrella within itself. And at, the, at a young age, I, I, I didn't uh, really fit in with uh, you know, some of uh, our, our white um, you know, neighbors or, 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 or American neighbors. Right? I was often bullied and picked on in school and uh, you know, mis uh, been mistreated unfairly. Uh, however, um, you know, a little on afterwards, uh, when I became a teenager, I, um, you know, started getting involved with uh, some of the other groups of Southeast Asian uh, young men who also went through the same similar experience. And we made a lot of, like, you know, uh, poor choices, horrible decisions, getting into trouble. As uh, teenagers, uh, our, our brain weren't fully developed and at the same time being influenced just by the culture uh, that we were surrounded. So at the age of 17, when I turned 17, around that age, my older brother, you know, life was taken from him, meaning that he was murdered. And uh, just during that time period, I, I didn't know how to deal with the emotion, the feeling, right? And um, also, you know, just everything that has transpired to, uh, in my life. And um, so um, me and, uh, and, and a friend, we made a horrible choice, which resulted in the death of a young man. So at the age of 17, I was arrested. And I, I know that I was going to be facing a lot of time. So I remember sitting in a juvenile hall, 17-year-old kid, uh, sitting in there in, in, a, in a six by 10 uh, concrete cell by myself and just started reflecting on my life. And everything that had transpired, you know, with the death of my older brother, with just everything, and also just with, uh, you know, the case and the situation. Then I finally just broke down and, and started crying. And uh, just, just while, you know, wondering if there is a God. And um, I finally broke down and cried and just cried out, say, God, if you're real, show me. Then I found a New Testament Bible in, in my cell, which is a small uh, Gideon's pocket New Testament. And um, it's one of those uh, Bible where, you know, you'll see uh, you know, the Gideon's uh, 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 workers or a volunteer would put in, uh, you know, jail cell or hospital bed. So this, is, this was one of it. So I opened it up and I read that one scripture and say that uh, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So with that scripture, you know, it brought me uh, some, some sense of peace or soothingness. And um, a week later, a priest came by my cell and started ministering to me about the gospel, how Christ himself is able to forgive, even, 
you know, the most uh, horrible sin. So the next uh, week, I went to church, and they preached about love and forgiveness. And that's when I surrendered my life to Christ and uh, allowed him to come into my heart and to, uh, you know, just cleanse me. And I, and I made a commitment to serve him. And uh, from, from there on, you know, throughout my prison experience, I have a different uh, perspective in life afterwards. You know, wanted to, uh, you know, uh, really become a, a, a man of God and really, you know, helping others. And uh, I went back, I was able to go back to school and, you know, I work on my GED. Then afterward, I um, was able to uh, I graduate with a, you know, a college degree. Then took a different self-help group, right, just to be able to understand the issue at hand about, you know, my parents' trauma and also my trauma as well, right? And at, and at the same time, uh, doing that introspective work, I was able to, uh, you know, understand the, uh, the issue at hand with others as well, you know, meaning the other, uh, other men who were in there. And by, by being able to do that, I was able to relate with them and also to share my experience and took on a leadership, uh, uh, you know, position where I began to uh, facilitate self-help classes to help men, you know, reform their life around. And, and through, uh, you know, the self-help class and also through Bible studies. So after 20 years of being incarcerated, um, I was able to uh, go in front of the Board of Parole here for the first time and, you know, was found suitable for parole with the commission, you know, confirmation saying that I was no longer the 17-year-old young man that I have transformed my life around. And with that uh, uh, suitability, uh, the governor also you know, confirmed that as well, meaning that I was granted a day to uh, get released. Um, however, you know, it was kind of like sweet and bitter at the same time because I had to face the immigration aspect of things. Uh, first of all, my family, uh, when we fled and we uh, resettled here, we came as refugee and became a permanent residence, uh, you know, got our green card. And however, because my parents, you know, didn't understand the way the system worked, and also that, that coin were permanent, you know, during that time it was considered permanent. But because of a 1996 law, which, you know, uh, targeted uh, many uh, immigrant and refugee, uh, so basically what, what, what the 1996 IRA, IRA Act, Immigration Reform Act, does is that those who have uh, aggravated felony, you know, their green card status can be stripped away from them and they can be deported. So because of that uh, law, however, I was sent to an immigration detention center for about two months and have undergone the immigration proceeding. And on paper today, I'm considered, you know, removed or deportable. But because uh, there's doing that uh, last year, you know, uh, that was last year when I was released from immigration, uh, uh, you know, after serving 20 years in prison. And the reason why I'm released is because uh, Laos did, did not recognize me as citizen and, and also uh, they cannot deport me. But however, I'm released under an order of supervision, meaning that I have to go into ICE on a regular check-in, you know, to go report myself into them. Uh, 
Uh, however, um, just uh, recently, the Trump administration had issued a sanction out on Laos, right? And saying that uh, if Laos does not, you know, cooperate, you know, I mean, there's uh, like a political reason where, you know, some of the high-ranking officials won't be able to come and travel, do business, and so forth. So right now, everything is kind of silent. But, you know, just because of that, I'm, I'm, I'm really in imminent danger of being deported to a country where I have never set foot on. But because of my family origin of being from Laos, because remember, I was born in a Thai refugee camp, and I resettled here at the age of two years old. And uh, as we see that, uh, that's what's currently uh, happening right now. And um, after my release from, uh, you know, uh, detention center of last year, I uh, began, you know, uh, involving myself in the community, uh, doing advocacy work, and also in, 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 in the church as well. So uh, I uh, landed a fellowship at the Asian Law Caucus last year. And I was able to uh, go back and forth, you know, Sacramento and the Bay Area and, um, you know, advocating for the passing of that, uh, the bill called the California Value Act, SB 54, that had passed last year. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, many uh, consider, you, uh, I mean, California as being uh, a sanctuary uh, state now because of that law. And because of that... Um, you know, um, my fellowship, I was able to go to different places, also speak, uh, speak against the deportation of uh, many Southeast Asian community, especially Cambodians. As, uh, as right now, you know, I mean, the Cambodians uh, community are really being targeted because of an agreement in 2002 where uh, U.S. and Cambodia agree, Cambodia agreed to take back refugees. Uh, the reason being behind that is because of uh, politics and corruption behind that. And however, um, the Trump administration was also trying to target um, the Vietnamese, but because of an agreement in 1995 that the Vietnamese, and confirmed in 2008 that the Vietnamese uh, government does not, you know, are not willing to take anyone that came over as refugee in 1995 or before. And that's still, that's still standing right now, but, but there's like a lot of pressure behind that. And, but the difference between Laos and the United States is that Laos is still considered a communist government. And that's the same government that, you know, uh, many uh, Laotians fled from. And um, based upon that is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of persecution if a person goes back, you know, because the human rights violation and so forth. So um, that's my, uh, you know, what uh, just the entire trajectory of my narrative consists of. And today I'm actually doing uh, many, uh, you know, work within the community with an organization called the Asian Prisoner Support Committee. What I do with the, with the organization is, uh, you know, provide resources for uh, men and women who have been impacted by the system, who are currently in there in detention center or deported or here, you know, at home in, in the U.S., to provide them with whatever resources that they need, you know, just, uh, just to help them out. And also, I'm a part of a church called uh, Second Life Chance International in San Francisco. We also do reentry services as well. And also, we're really involved with, uh, you know, our, um, our Asian-American community here, especially in the Chinatown area as well. So, yes, yeah, thank you for that. 
Well, thank you, Danny. I encourage you, uh, after service, Danny will hang around. And if you have an opportunity to come up to him, you go ahead and, and, and hear more about his story. He is seeking a pardon from our governor, so he needs letters to be written on his behalf. And if you're interested to find out more, you're welcome to come up and talk to, to Danny. He'll be in the lobby area, and so be sure to touch base with him. So thank you. As you uh, kind of surmise, I mean, this is, this is a, just a morning we're going to cover this topic, and this topic is, is complex, but it, it is, in many ways, touches many of our lives, whether it was from our past or in our present. And, and as a people group, we kind of have to understand that we don't want to be hoodwinked to understand that we are safe. Because our, this country has a history of not looking for the best of Asian Americans. And so we have a generation that has lived under a certain amount of prosperity, but there is part of it that we have to be wise, that things can change. And we've seen historically where things will retroactively affect who we are and our place in this country. So don't be too comfortable. We have to be alert 